So it was a bit of a back and forth between are we going to study the book of Esther or are we going to do a mini-series before we go to Esther and finally decided to land on doing a mini-series before Esther and we are going to do a mini-series on communion with God. Communion with God. Um, how to have communion with God and especially we are going to focus on having communion with God um, in each person of the Trinity. Communion with the Father, communion with the Son, and communion with the Holy Spirit. And when I say, when I use the word communion, I simply mean fellowship, friendship, relationship, a mutual sharing and giving, a receiving and a giving of ourselves with God Himself. In, in short, it is to know God and to be known by God. Jesus prayed this in John 17 verse 3. He defined this communion with God as knowing God. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In 1 John, the apostle invites us into this fellowship with them as believers. In 1 John 1 verse 3, he says, that, we, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. The apostle John says they want fellowship with one another because they have fellowship with the father and the son. So it's as if they're inviting them into their fellowship so that they can enjoy the same fellowship they have with the father and the son. But what about the Holy Spirit? Well, that famous benediction, we close with a lot of our services in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the what? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In fact, that would be our main verse we'll be studying in this series on communion with God. We're going to take each of those phrases and see how we have communion with the Father in love, how we have communion with the Son in grace, and how we have communion with the Spirit in fellowship. And that's what we're going to look at. But for now, this, for this Sunday, I wanted us to just lay a strong foundation of Knowing what the triune God means. What do we mean when we say God is a trinity or God is triune? Um, that, that is necessary because I suspect there is a lot of misunderstandings about what it means that we have a triune God, that God is a trinity. And sure enough, if you've been living in Portugal, if you live anywhere in the world really, you'll encounter Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and then your understanding of the Trinity will be challenged. And then if you just say, well, I just believe that because I believe that, you have no foundation under you, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so I want us to look at Scripture, look at what the Bible says, and see that this is a solid, to believe in the Trinity, we have some solid ground under our feet. And it really should ignite your worship of this triune God. And sadly, I think there are very few Christians who understand the Trinity. And that's really a shame. A shame to, I would say, to churches, to Christian parents, of not teaching our children what this Trinity is and to understand it even logically. Because I'm tempted to think that when we think of the Trinity, we subtly wonder, isn't that a contradiction that God can be one and three at the same time? That doesn't sound very mathematical, right? And so hopefully we can start to correct that. We can have a correct understanding of the Trinity and then, Lord willing, share that with 
other disciples or with our children or a future generation. So we'll be looking at a definition of the Trinity, a very simple one. It's not going to be a very full, full one. Then I'm going to show scripture proofs of the definition, and then I'll close with some applications for us. So first, let's begin with a definition. Definition. Here's the definition. It says, There is but only one true living God, and this God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a bit of that definition that's missing because you'll know um, the fuller teaching of the Scriptures show the Son is begotten and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I possibly can. And also because I myself don't fully understand that yet. So <laughs> it's just never wise to teach something you don't understand, right? Okay, so we're on the same page. I'm going to stick to the simple definition. And maybe, Lord willing, that will warrant a future sermon on the eternal generation of the Son or the spiration of the Spirit. But So this definition shows that if you flip this around, this would be heresy. We do not believe we have three gods. So that's heresy. We don't have three gods. They're not three beings. or all, They are not three almighties, three sovereigns. No, there's only one almighty. There's only one sovereign, one being, one simple essence, undivided. Does, it cannot multiply. It cannot be chopped in three or anything like that. No, it's one God, God almighty. And we also don't believe there's only one person. Okay, so we don't believe that there's only one person. It's not as if the Father turns into the Son and then the Son turns into the Spirit. We don't think, for example, that the Father died on the cross. You know, sometimes um, I think Christians are innocent when they pray like that. Father, thank you for dying for us on the cross. That's wrong. <laughs> you know, Father, thank you for sending your Son to die for us on the cross. Right? It wasn't the Son that was poured out at Pentecost on those early believers, but the Spirit. The Spirit was poured out on the believers. So there are three persons, not to be conflated with each other. They, they are to be distinct. The persons are not mixed, okay? They are distinct. In other words, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but all three persons share the same essence, the simple divine essence. Now, let me clarify this even more. Now, if you, if you just listen to this, maybe for the first time, you might be tempted to think of the, like this. You might be tempted to think, maybe, so you, are you saying God is like a pizza? Okay, the Father has one slice of God, the Son has one slice of God, and the Spirit has one slice. So three slices, 33.33% is the Father, 33.33% the Son, and so forth, the Spirit. Right? Isn't that what you said? You just said they share the same nature. That's what we do when we share things. Okay, we cut it, cut it up and we share it. Right? So isn't that what it means with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to share? And the short answer is that's heresy. <laughs> that's wrong. Okay, The Father doesn't possess a, a third of the divine nature, but 100% of the essence of God. The Son shares 100% of the nature of God, and I'm going to just repeat myself, the Spirit possesses 100% of the essence of God. 
So if you are listening to me, you should be starting to feel that your head is swimming. Like, okay, I just don't understand that. That's confusing. Well, it should make you feel a bit uncomfortable. It should make you feel like, I don't understand that because it's a mystery. A mystery in this sense that unless God has revealed it to us in Scripture, we would never believe it. And it's a mystery because we would never understand it with our limited understanding. Never fully grasp it. We are creatures. We are finite. We are talking about the infinite God. So if your God makes perfect sense, it's a God of your own invention. Right? But the true God of Scripture is going to blow your mind. You're going to say, I, okay, I, I, I guess I just have to believe. But let me clarify something also very important. This is not a logical contradiction. So when we say God shares the same essence, although they are in three persons, we're not saying that they are one and three in the same sense. If we, if we were to say that, that would be a logical contradiction. If we were to say there is one God and three gods, that's wrong, right? Or there is one person and three persons. That's wrong. Now, here, let me give you the most helpful way that, that helps me. And I hope it helps you, okay? There is a difference between a what and a who. And that's why that's not a contradiction. There's a difference between a what and a who. A what refers to something's nature, something's essence. So if I'm talking about this microphone... I'm talking about the essence of this microphone, but this microphone doesn't have a who. I'm not talking to this microphone as a person. That's normally the first signs of insanity. When you're talking to a what as a who, okay, get some help. But we as human beings, guess what? We have a what and a who in us. We are one human nature and we have one person in us, personality, your personhood, your likes and dislikes, right? What makes you, you? That's a person in you. But God happens to be one what with three who's, okay? One what, one essence, one being, and three who's who share that one what. Now, the reason you cannot comprehend that is because God is one of a kind. There's simply nothing in all of creation that you can say, oh, God is almost like that, isn't it? Or, oh, I can take water, ice, and, and vapor and say, isn't God like that, right? It's still water, but the one turns into the other, and it's the three different forms. No, that's also heresy. <laughs> okay, that's modalism, right? Patrick, <laughs> okay, if you know that, okay? So in... At the end of the day, God is in a class of its own, of his own. You cannot compare him. He's the incomparable God. God is not like a clover with three stems, like the, like the Canadian leaf, right? The maple leaf with like, yeah, it's like one base leaf and then there are the three sides. No, that's also partialism. That's 33, 33, 33 or whatever it is, right? But that's not what it is. God is 100%, the Son, the Spirit and and the Father shares 100%. You see, so the more illustrations our human minds are tempted to want to go and grasp, the more we just have to realize, I give up. I can't compare this God to anything. I can't fully grasp him. But he's amazing. And praise God for that. That's one of the reasons that you should stand in awe of who he is. 
one reason you'll be fascinated with this triune God for all of eternity is you're going to take eternity to get to know him. The way I like to say it is eternity is simply too short to know God. We need more time than eternity. Okay, that's a logical contradiction, but I hope you're getting my point. I'm making a rhetorical point, not a logical point. Okay, Eternity is too short to know God. That's why heaven will never be boring. After billions of years of studying God, of knowing God, we're, gonna scratch, we're only scratching the surface of who He is. So that's the definition. I hope it, hope it makes sense. But now let me try and prove it to you from the Bible. So secondly, let's look at biblical proofs. Biblical proofs. Of course, you should not care what I think about the Trinity. You should not worry what Pastor Rian says. You should wonder, is this actually what the Bible says? Now, skeptics of Christianity like to say the following thing and say, did you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? Did you know that? The word Trinity is not in the Bible, and yet you believe it. The word Trinity only came a few hundred years after Christ. That shows it's a human invention, right? Now, some Christians are taken aback by that, but that shouldn't take you by surprise or, or, or yeah, take you aback. Because we're not defending the word per se, we're defending the teaching behind the word, the reality of the, the truth behind it. And you can maybe just answer the skeptic something like this. Did you know the word omnipresent is also not in the Bible? Did you know that? Omnipresent, that God is everywhere present is not in the Bible, yet the Bible clearly teaches that God is everywhere at the same time. You see, you don't have to have the Word in the Bible to believe the truth that the Word communicates. Just read Psalm 139. If I go to heaven, if I go to, uh, to hell, there you are, Lord. I can't hide from you. You're everywhere. And this verse is just too good not to read. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There's no place to hide. I love that one of our catechism questions of our, for, where we're teaching our little boys is, can you see God? And the answer is, no, but God can always see me. <laughs> okay? God sees everything. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But the word isn't in the Bible. And that's the same thing with the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but its teaching is. Its reality is. So let's examine then the first truth. The Bible simply and clearly declares to us there is only one true God. That's the first piece of, this, of the Trinity puzzle, right? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 43 verse 10. By the way, this is a good verse to remember for, for, for Mormons. Okay? Remember, Mormons believe there has been many gods before the Father, and there are many gods to come. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 43, verse 10. It says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no god was formed, nor shall there be any after me. No god before, no god after, because there's only one. That's the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have... No other gods before me. Some people have thought that meant, oh, so you see, there are other gods. No, that's not the point of this verse. It says you shall not substitute the worship of the only true God with false gods. 
of man's imagination, of man's invention. Yes, there are other gods, but they are false. They are non-existent. That's why it's so stupid to worship other gods, because they don't exist. There's only one true God. One more, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In the New Testament, often God is simply referred to as the Father. The Father, the great majority of verses in the Bible, when it speaks of God, speaks of the Father specifically. But yes, the But that doesn't mean the Son or the Spirit is not God. So let's go to the second point. We also see clearly from the Old Testament there's a plurality in God. There's a plurality in God, in this one God. And we find that as early as Genesis chapter 1. The first hint that God is plural in unity is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Also, that passage, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, when it says the Lord our God is one, is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 2, 24, that says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the same Hebrew word used in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord is echat. He is one. So even there, the word one can mean multiple in singular. Now, of course, the Old Testament, we don't have the full teaching of the Trinity. We have these shadows, but in the light of the New Testament, we can declare that this does point us to the Trinity. And that leads us now to the third point we need to say is the Son is God. So there's too many scriptures to show the Father is God. I hope you believe that. If you want the scripture verse, it's 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. We've read that previously. But now let's look at the Son is God. John 1 verse 1. Okay. Easy to remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, you see, is distinct from God in His person, and yet the Word shares the same essence, the same nature as the Father. The Word was God. This is one of the most important verses on the Trinity, and we know this refers to Jesus because of John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is one of Jesus' names? What prophecy that he fulfilled when he was born? He is called our Emmanuel. What? God with us. Look at Acts 20, verse 28. Here, Paul calls Jesus God because he says, Listen to this. Um, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whose blood? God's blood. But we know this refers to Christ. This refers to the Lord Jesus dying on the cross. And Paul just says, That's God's blood, paying for the sins of his people. Philippians 2 verse 5, another well-known verse, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So to say he was in the form of God means to, be, to share the very nature of God, yet Jesus did not cling to the privileges of being God. He emptied himself by adding to himself a second nature. So he humbled himself by becoming a man. 
So you see, he was in the form of God. He is God. Another, another interesting way to prove the deity of Christ is to look at how the New Testament quotes passages about Jesus in the Old Testament that referred to Yahweh and then says, Jesus fulfilled that. So Romans 10, 13, a very famous verse, and I didn't know this before I studied this, but for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now in the context of Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32, an Old Testament passage. Look at it. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord there is all capital letter Lord Yahweh. If you call on the name of Yahweh, you will be saved. So call on the name of Jesus because he's Yahweh of the Old Testament. He shares the essence, the nature of the Father and the Son. Interesting, um, I didn't put this in, in the sermon, but you will also see in the Old Testament, you see the angel of Yahweh. When this, the people encountered the angel of the Lord, they say, I have seen God. They call the angel of the Lord God himself. And I believe that's a pre-incarnate Christ. That's the Lord Jesus appearing. Now, we could multiply the examples of the deity of Christ by a thousand, but we're going to stop there and go on to the next point. The Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. And here the clearest example is found in Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. It says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So Ananias was lying to the Holy Spirit. And the very next verse reads, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Lying to the Spirit, lying to God is the same thing. That's why it's so serious. Paul calls the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Holy Spirit. So let's close our time with some applications. What difference should this make to our lives? Well, the first, let me, allow me to make three applications for us. First, our gender roles as male and female are not random. Remember, God made us in his image. We were made male and female to reflect the beautiful diversity as well as the harmony that exists within the Trinity itself. So that's why I really do believe the best illustration, although an inadequate illustration of the nature of God should be marriage. The two become one. There's something mysterious. Even Paul says, right, that refers to Christ and the church as we are united to Christ. There's such a beautiful imagery found in marriage. The union of a man and a wife which produces a third person out of their union of love proceeds a third person, children, right? Now, again, I just want to clarify, this is an imperfect illustration. It's not, you also go into heresy if you want to make a one-to-one one -one comparison to that. But I do think by God calling us in the image of God, he says, here's the illustration. Look at it. 
Look at how these people are. Look at how marriage looks like. And you have something, you have a shadow of something of the love and the adoration between the Father and the Son and the Spirit binding them together. And there's just some logical reasons for that is only men can carry the title of Father. So men in their role as head of the wife, as the leader of the home, is not random. It's meant to reflect the father's role of initiating, giving, providing. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The father initiated, the father planned, the father goes forth, right? And the son and his son's response to the father and his his submission to the Father then reflects something of the femininity within women, that she is made in the image of God. As the Son delights to do the will of the Father, so wives should delight to do the will of their husbands. Again, look at marriage, and that should show you something of the picture of the love between the Father and the Son. And then in their union produces a third person. Their love overflows into children. And so as well, the love of the Father and the Son overflows into a third person, the person of the the Holy Spirit. So I don't know if I'm correct or wrong. I'm willing to say I'm open to be corrected by this. But when I look at Jordan and Alakai, my two sons, I see my love for my wife. I see in them the embodiment of my love for my wife. And it makes me want to love them more because I love my wife. And that's just for me. That's how I apply it. I hope it's helpful for you. But, but on that side note, because the family, because male and female is so close to what it means to be in the image of God, do you understand if we live in a culture where homosexuality is practiced, where gender is confused, where marriages are crumbling and destroyed, Our genders are distorted and twisted, that people find it extremely hard to relate to God as their father. Often when, if you didn't have a good relationship with your father, now you have to call God your father? That's hard. That's difficult. That's your only point of reference, right, in a sense. And that's why the family is to be so sacred, so important, why the devil was and is and will always target marriages, target families. So men and women made in the image of our triune God is a good thing. And so don't despise your maleness. To be a man is good. To be a woman is good as well. Okay, I don't know how that feels, but my point is it's good the way you've been made. Don't despise your masculinity or your femininity. And we have a sacred duty to protect that as we want to reflect the image of God. That's the first application. Second application for us is this. Love is to be other-focused instead of self-focused. Love is to be other-focused instead of to be self-focused. Now, this is more of a philosophical implication of God being three in one because Scripture tells us God is love. And when Scripture tells us that, that God is love, it means God has been love from all of eternity past. Before there was anybody else except himself to love God was love, but because God was not a singular person, he always was looking outward to other persons to love. Within the Trinity, there was perfect love, the Father loving the Son, the Son responding, the Spirit binding. 
You see, if he was only one God and one person, he could not be love because love is to be focused on somebody else, to give. There would be nobody to love. But since God is a community in unity, he is love from all of eternity past. Love is to be focused on outward, to look outward, to look away from yourself, to somebody else, to adore somebody else, to give yourself up for somebody else. So in other words, God is the only being that can be both God-centered and other-focused at the same time. For God to be all about God is good. That's loving because he's also at the same time focusing on other people, other persons. And so when God made you in his image, he made you to be like that. Not to be focused on yourself, but to focus on God and other people. To be God-centered and other people-centered in a way. And you know this to be true. I don't have to explain it to you. You know you are extremely unhappy when you are self-centered. You are extremely depressed when you're only focusing on your own needs, your own worries, your own concerns. And there's a kind of joy and satisfaction to find joy in somebody else when somebody else is joyful in what you have given that person or have done for that person. So, in other words, it's a lie of our culture to believe that you first need to learn to love yourself before you can love other people. That's a lie. That's a myth. That's not true. Usually what that means when people say that is you should have a high self-esteem of yourself. You should really focus on your image and how you look. And the irony is the people that are focusing on their self-esteem has the lowest self-esteem. And the people that forget that they are bold, like myself. <laughs> okay? I don't care anymore because I'm thinking of you. Okay, now I'm thinking of my boldness, but I hope I'm just trying to make a point. But that's not love. It's not love to say, I'm going to first learn to love myself and I'll give you the leftovers. Because normally there's nothing left. Right? I'm not talking about taking care of yourself, okay? I'm not talking about, listen, you need to sleep eight hours a night. I don't care who you say you are, okay? Maybe six, but then you're going to catch up in 40 and 50 years old, okay? Or you need to take a day off. I'm not talking about that. That's being human, okay? You need to, to rest. But that's not what I'm talking I'm talking about like, first feeling good about yourself before you can feel good about oh that's not even what love is it's not a feeling primarily it's a choice that where feelings follow and again like that's why if you look at COVID and you see the the increase in depression you, you can understand why because we were never meant to be alone people that are alone are depressed because we're not made we're made to be like God that's in community, that's in relationship both with God and one another, with, an, with other people. It is not good for man to be alone. Now that refers to marriage, but it also just refers to friendships, and it's not good for you to be alone. I find this extremely interesting that the worst punishment people can give criminals is solitary confinement. It's illegal to do it over a few hours, like a, a, a certain amount of hours, because it's torture. To, let, to just lock someone up without human interaction. That, that shouldn't surprise us as Christians. Of course, we are made in the imago day. We're made in the image of God. We're not meant to be lone rangers because we have a triune God, a God who is both community in unity. And yes, even for those of you who might be single and maybe longing for marriage but not married yet, God has given you 
the church. God has given you friends. God has given you people around you to love, to give yourself to, and find your joy in that. And here's the last point I want to make. The last application is this. The Trinity expands the wonder of the incarnation. So the Trinity expands the wonder of the incarnation. The incarnation meaning the Son becoming a man. So get this. In the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity took a second nature, a second essence. Okay, it was, Let me say it like the way we said it in the past. The second who took a second what. So the Son is only one who. There's only one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that one who has two what's. Fully God, fully man. In, in the person of the Son has been united the nature of man forever. Forever and ever the Son will have both a divine and a human nature. That just blows my mind. For all of eternity you will be able to hug Jesus because he's a human. And he's God. Listen, just to clarify, the Father doesn't have two natures. The Spirit doesn't have two natures. Only the Son has, because only the second who took a second what. You see, and that was necessary, him to be the God-man in order to pay for your sins. That was the only way for Jesus both to fully satisfy the infinite wrath of God over your sins and to represent you as a man, as a human being on that cross. We, we looked at that at the American Gospel. It's as if Jesus put his hand both on God and on us. And he alone is now the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Because he is the infinite, spotless, pure, beloved, holy son of God. He could pay for your sins in a few hours. Where it would take you all of eternity to pay for that. But also, because he was man, he could die for you. He could pay the penalty for you. He could take your place. That's why there's no other way to the Father except through him. There's no other God-man. There's no other one like him. He, too, is a one of a kind. No one is like Jesus. No one could reconcile both God and man, no matter how good they were. And so this is good news. You see how the Trinity becomes good news so that you too, if you would call on the name of Yahweh, you will be saved. So call. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Receive his grace to wash away your sins. And then follow him in discipleship and worship him. Worship the triune God. Worship him by Loving the Father, loving the Son, loving the Spirit, and worshiping them. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are beyond our understanding you are incomparable to anything in this universe you are more glorious more beautiful more gracious and loving than we can ever imagine 
And Lord, thank you that you are one God, that we don't have to divide our affections even between the, the persons of the Trinity because you are one. So, Father, we worship you. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you. For you are the only living God. Lord, in this series, as we look at having communion with you, Father, please help us and clarify our thinking in this. Draw us to yourself that we might love you more. And that we also, that that love would spill over into our love for one another, Lord. So, Father, thank you for this time. We give you the glory for everything you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.